When it comes to eating recovery, Sierra Tucson may not be top of mind for folks, but thanks to the expertise of recovery dietitians and Sierra Tucson's secondary eating recovery services, it might be the perfect place to receive the treatment that you need. And joining me today are Larissa Biznachuk. She's the Director of Secondary Eating Recovery Services at Sierra Tucson. And I'm also joined by Jessica Griffith. She's an eating recovery dietitian with Sierra Tucson. This is Let's Talk Mind, Body, Spirit by Sierra Tucson. Sierra Tucson, a leader in the field of behavioral health care since 1983. I'm Scott Webb. So it's great to have you both on today. We're going to talk about eating recovery and what that means in practical terms and how you help patients, clients, and so on. Before we get to that, though, let's start here, Jessica. Tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into the field, and what you do. Well, hi, thanks for having us. I'm yeah. Jessica Griffith. I am a registered dietitian and a certified eating disorder specialist at Sierra Tucson. Um, before I began my career in eating disorders, I actually worked in sports nutrition, predominantly working with college and professional athletes, the collegiate setting, and human performance. Over time, I found the higher the competition, the more eating disorder risk and red flags are associated with that level of competition. Eating disorders are a specific niche and a skill set I wasn't strong at during that time in my field, so I decided to take a step back from sports and learn more about eating disorders. The only way to really learn is to immerse yourself into the field in and of itself. I saw the benefit of educating myself how to assess and treat eating disorders since it does go hand in hand in the field of sports nutrition and come to find out I really enjoyed this field as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mentioned uh, we were talking about cold weather softball where I live, and my daughter's an athlete, softball, basketball, uh, wants to play in college, so maybe we can do a separate podcast about that. But for today, Larissa, I want to give you an opportunity as well. We joked a little bit. You have lots of letters after your name. What do all those letters mean? Tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and what all those letters mean. My name is Larissa Biznichuk. I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner, and B and C means board certified. I worked for Sierra Tucson for almost eight years now, and before that I did have experience working with mental health, psychiatric mental health, in, in a community clinic. So with that, when I came to Sierra Tucson, there was very interesting times. A lot of changes were going on, and I decided that I am very much interested in eating disorder, and I had an opportunity to jump into this field. And like Jessica sa said, you have to emerge yourself to learn about things. So I emerged myself into eating disorder, working with clients with eating disorder and mental health, and I'm enjoying this field very much so. That's nice. I'm enjoying your accent as well. I'm, I love accents, so I, my mind starts to drift a little bit when I hear someone with an awesome accent. So it's great to have you both on. Uh, Jessica, I know you're an RD, a registered dietitian, so tell listeners what that means and what you do with sort of in practical terms at Sierra Tucson. Absolutely. So a registered dietitian is a credential and board certified medical nutrition professional. Just like a medical doctor, we as dietitians have a distinct pathway that requires formal education, training, and passing a national board exam to earn the credential, licensure, and the title of registered dietitian, which can be really confusing to residents or anyone really. In summary, all dietitians are nutritionists, but not all nutritionists are dietitians. 
When it comes to the term nutritionist, there are absolutely no requirements for someone to call themselves a nutritionist or things like a nutrition coach or a health coach. They might have some education experience, but many do not have the formal education and training. I see what you mean. I was just thinking about, you know, you were talking about what you did before in your sort of previous life, and I was just thinking about my daughter and I were at a basketball tournament and what we subsisted on while we were there, crumble cookies, things like that, and uh, I know that I... <laughs> All foods fit. Yeah, yeah, and I'm just like, you know, we also had some bananas in the room, so bananas and granola and some cookies. So, yeah, diet is so important, right, and eating right and getting that right and seeking professional help when we need it. So, Larissa, let's bring you back in here. What can residents expect when they meet you? When clients are first admitted to CR2, and they are coming to our inpatient unit, where they're first evaluated. Some of them need detox, other need the monitoring of their safety. Some of the clients needs to be assessed for eating disorder. Depends on their acuity. In the most cases, our dietitian will consult a client, determine if client is appropriate for our program, and if they're in need of follow-up. When the clients who are accepted onto our eating recovery truck, are transferred to Sierra Tucson residential setting, they usually assigned to me. On our first meeting, I evaluate clients for severity of trauma or mood or addiction or eating disorder or all of the above. We also discuss some of the pharmacological management of their symptoms, laboratory results, and genetic testing if we have it available. We will discuss some correlation between symptoms and behaviors which they exhibit, you know, if trauma related to eating disorder or eating disorder related to trauma. And we will definitely will discuss the course of treatment. Basically, in the short, they can expect from me the assessment, education, and pharmacological treatment. Yeah, it's good to understand the process, I'm sure, for listeners especially. You two, when you came on, you were talking to each other and laughing with each other. I'm assuming, though you don't do the exact same thing, that you guys work together, or at least you know each other. Maybe you can address that a little bit, Jessica. Like, how do you and Larissa work together? That's complex in nature. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Some- So uh, sometimes the patient will meet with me before they see Larissa. It just all depends on a patient's history. Typically, they'll see a dietitian first. There's more than just myself. I have two other colleagues hoping for a fourth. Sure. Nudge, nudge. (laughs) (laughs) They could use the support. I think it's pretty standard. And when I say standard, what residents might expect from their psychiatric provider. However, when they work with a dietitian, I think they just think we're going to talk about food groups. And that's like the least of the amount of work that I do with them. So I typically meet with them for an hour and I go over both their medical and behavioral nutrition history. So medical nutrition history is pretty straightforward, like their diet intake, labs, weight trend, any medications associated with nutrition. But most of it is behavioral nutrition, which catches residents off guard. Okay. And I always explain to them, like, if you're coming to Sierra Tucson for mood, trauma, pain, or addiction, that's probably impacting your appetite and intake, whether you're not eating all the things, we're swinging back and forth, getting rid of our food. And so with that assessment, I will 
determine if they're clinically appropriate for our secondary eating recovery program. And we emphasize secondary because we are not a primary eating disorder treatment. We're primary mood, trauma, pain, and addiction. So we are supporting a resident through their journey. And that's how I'm like, hey, would really appreciate if this resident could be assigned with Larissa as she is the provider for the eating recovery team. She's the director. So our main work is you know, beyond just the patients, it's treatment team meetings. I mean, it's this podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> so we do a yeah. lot of things to not only promote patient safety, but eating recovery support for Sierra Tucson and I think Acadia overall, because we are the crown jewel. I'm with for you. Sure. I would not argue that. And hopefully a little nudge to Sierra Tucson, we could use a fourth person. Absolutely. So Jessica, what are some of the strategies then in nutrition therapy? Like what does that mean, nutrition therapy? And what are some of the strategies? So as a dietitian that specializes in mental health, specifically eating disorders, I actually spend most of my time conducting nutrition therapy. So again, little actually about food, because when it comes to disordered eating and eating disorders, it has little to do with food. Hmm. Just how people can conceptualize drinking uh, or any sort of substance abuse or maybe gambling, risky behaviors as a way to like cope with their feelings, so can food restriction or overeating. Those can also be coping tools as well. So as a nutrition therapist, I utilize the same well-known therapy modalities such as CBT, DBT, ACT, just like our primary therapist, except everything I focus on is related to food, body image, body functionality, and movement. My main role is to free a patient's primary therapist from discussing topics related to their eating disorder, disordered eating, so they can focus on their primary reason for being at Sierra Tucson, which again, might be mood, trauma, pain, or addiction. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. And maybe Larissa, you can build on that a little bit as I'm just thinking about people and their relationships with food and the work that you both do and everybody does there at Sierra Tucson to help folks. Where do you kind of fit into this? I do try to build on whatever Jessica is or any of our other dietitians doing with the clients, trying to help them to understand the importance of nourishment their brain in whatever, you know, work they are doing, the trauma work, addiction work, mood disorder work. We just need to make sure that, you know, the brain is nourished so it can do the work and I do a little bit of a (laughs) joke with my clients saying that I have a very beautiful view from my office I I see the parking lot but there is a lot of trees there too (laughs) Jessica can vouch well at least you have a window yeah (laughs) yes just yeah yeah I do and I love it So what I usually tell my clients, look outside. What do you see outside? You see a lot of cars, right? We won't be able to get to work. We won't be able to get from work if we wouldn't put any fuel in the car. Why do you think you will be able to do all this very hard work without fueling your brain, your body? And it kind of, you know, I think it settles people to understand that, yeah, they need to make it more comfortable for them so they can do all this work. Yeah. Strong motivational interviewing skills are key when assessing a resident's relationship yeah. with sure. not only food, but their body image and with exercise. So definitely using a lot of analogies. There isn't a traditional questionnaire or sequence of questions to mm. necessarily come to a direct conclusion. 
In a roundabout way, we ask the same question in multiple different ways in order for the patient to start unfolding their nutrition history, starting from childhood to current day. And throughout the assessment, they'll basically unfold their story. And as a clinician, we'll, <laughs> we'll be able to have a better idea right. and insight with their relationship with food and behaviors. Yeah. And, you know, that that's for sure, if I can step yeah. in. That's for sure. We need to develop trust with our clients. And sometimes it takes time to develop trust. And not all of the questions we can ask right away. Now, there is yeah, definitely no template for the questions. Yeah, and of course, it's all you know, focused on the specific client and their needs and not one size fits all. And one of the things I've learned in speaking with others from Sierra Tucson is just the importance of you know, clients being their sort of most real and authentic selves, leaving the masks, if you will, at the door and really being honest. And I think, Larissa, as you're saying, trust is so important to, to really get it, the information you need to make proper diagnoses and really help people, right? For sure. Yes. And I'm sure also that you see things like over-exercising or being overly focused on the quote-unquote allowed foods, right? So how do you help clients stay in that middle ground, you know, the, keep them exercising because it's important to their overall health, like food and other things, but not go too far and keep them away from what become obsessive behaviors? Oh, I love this question. This this is absolutely, you know, yeah. You're welcome. I think Sierra Tucson's <laughs> curious of how we do this in general. <laughs> That, that's for sure, you know, and uh, we, we quite often hear this question, you know, we see it, we quite often have to direct our clients to what's healthy and what's not healthy. And it's, it's kind of ties in with our media, you know, people now have very easy access to social media where a lot of fitness and clean, healthy eating advice, right, yeah. intermixed with the body shaming and sometimes very abusive contact, mm. content of the information they receive, it's hard to avoid it. It's hard to not to hear that. So we're trying to find a happy media where, with our clients and developing trust between clinician and the client is the most important thing you know yeah. having our client to understand that clinician is actually on their side and trying to help them not trying to you know get into the power struggle you can do or you cannot do things but trying to help them to be healthy for themselves yeah, it's 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 hard. You know, we are we all very different. We all have different body type. We have different body image for ourselves. It's yeah, as you say, the social media. Every time I open Instagram, you know, I'm left wondering: Is there anyone on here who isn't filtered? You know, who hasn't made <laughs> themselves oh thinner goodness, and prettier absolutely. and all of that? You know. It's unfortunately normalized, you know, going yeah. on a diet or changing your body. So, I mean, with that being said, sometimes it's just hard to find that middle ground because our patients just need to be able to hear and see in the first place that there's room for improvement with their relationship with food and body image or just like they have an active eating disorder to begin with. When everyone else is praising them 
for how they're achieving their ideal body or and not knowing that they're engaging in really harmful behaviors with food, it's really hard for them to hear and see what us as clinicians that specialize in this work have to say and that our overall intent is to promote safety. And that's where I try to help them find the middle ground. I'm like, this is what your intent is, but our actions are not aligning with our intent. I'm not quite sure how restricting our food intake and being obsessive about calories and reaching 15,000 steps, you know, just some behaviors that are normalized that are praised from diet culture and social media, how that's helping you be a better mom or helping you be a better athlete or how is that defining your health? So (laughs) it's a very complex situation. It is, and it's hard to tackle all this in 20, 25 minutes in a podcast, but at least we get the conversation rolling and we have a better sense of how you can help folks there. And wondering, Larissa, we think about these negative thoughts and actions. How do you redirect that, right? How do you channel that maybe is another way to put it? But when it comes to eating recovery, how do you help folks with the negative thoughts? In my experience, ability to redirect clients' negative self-talk is directly connected to the level of client's trust with provider and to the ability of mitigate patients' triggers. Redirecting negative self-talk related to eating disorder usually has to be done in conjunction, in connection with redirecting negative thoughts related to trauma, mood issues, to addiction triggers. You know, more often eating disorder not happening just on its own. It's usually related to maybe to trauma, childhood trauma or adulthood trauma, to addiction or to the mood dysregulation. It's, it's hard to just redirect negative self-talk related to nutrition. We need to work on it, you know, all together. I think overall, sometimes it can be a one-to-one with a provider, but I really think just collaborating with the rest of the treatment team, including primary therapist or any other professionals working with the resident just to help with that re-engagement. Because when there's an increased negative self-talk or increase in maladaptive behaviors, the treatment team can be really beneficial in reminding a resident like, hey, we're all on the same team. Yeah, We're just not all on the same sheet of music. And so the whole intent is right to get you better and you get to define that. I think you'll feel residents forget that they're also members of their treatment team. Right. And they're actually the ones inhibiting their own progress. Yeah, and it just feels like what I'm hearing today is that issues with food or sort of troubled relationships with food or eating disorders, those types of things, there's almost always underlying root causes, whether that's, again, trauma, mood disorders, things like that. And it's almost sort of a a symptom of those things. So you're kind of maybe sometimes working your way backwards. Like, okay, someone comes in for an eating disorder, but you're really trying to get at what caused the eating disorder. Do I have that right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, eating disorders are a specific niche that not every healthcare provider has training on. And so, again, they think we're talking about food groups and they're wondering why I'm asking about childhood mealtimes. And for example, come to find out, you know, they had food insecurity, maybe their parents were addicts. And so Mm -hmm. it was normal to them to be without food and how that can disrupt their growth pattern and just 
how they see food and perceive it and, you know, bullying. And there's just so many things. And the whole point is recognizing like, hey, these are like little T's, which I refer to little traumas. And those things add up yeah. to a big T. But, Where yeah, some things sure. are obvious to to some residents, you know, if I have a, a veteran, you know, that's been in combat, that's an obvious big T or sexual trauma, you know, mm -hmm. big T, but all those other little T's too, we can't discredit them. Absolutely. I yeah. very much agree with Jessica. You know, those little uh, T's are definitely add up. And when clients are coming and saying, no, it was fine. We just sometimes didn't have food on our table. Yeah, it doesn't everyone register. skips meals what are you talking about right it, <laughs> right. it was so normalized in their family right they may just yeah. be finding out in their 30s or 40s oh wait that wasn't sort of normal that right. wasn't the case for everybody else my friends at school whatever yeah that's very much true yeah everyone yeah. has disordered eating i think that's the thing i try to normalize because right. there's no such thing as a perfect diet we're gonna have preferences sure we're gonna have quirky things because that's how we grew up like one of my girlfriends she will not drink anything until she finishes her meal because she grew up with her parents wanting to make sure she didn't drink her nutrition. And so there's just some things that stick with us that we don't even realize we do until they have a dietitian friend. <laughs> well, yeah. And, uh, nice to have a dietitian friend, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and at the same time, there you know some cultural preferences. You right. know, I'm from Eastern Europe and we don't drink cold water. It's just not in my culture. And when I'm asking, okay, don't put ice in my water. I'm not going to drink it. <laughs> right. Nobody understands it here. And that's you don't okay. have You don't have to heat the water up. Just don't make it colder, right? Exactly. Yeah. Don't boil it. <laughs> hey, this has been really fun today. I just kind of finish up on a little bit lighter one. Jessica, maybe you take this one first. What are some things you see around the holidays? I know for me anyway, I look forward to the holidays and sometimes I'll sort of like starve myself for like the day before so that I have plenty of room for all the holiday food. But generally speaking, what do you see? Uh, well, one, I don't recommend that. I figured, <laughs> you need nourishment yeah. <laughs> all the time. Um, honestly, I personally see an increase in intensity around food restriction in multiple forms, whether that's dieting, cutting out food groups, being mindful of calories or, or you know, macros, eating less, just some sort of eating pattern requiring you to take in less food. I also hear more conversations and comments related to diet culture. For example, it's just, I'll hear from my patients where it's like, oh, I can't, I can't, I don't want to see my grandparents. I'm like, well, why? And they're like, they just always like, oh my God, you're so skinny. Mm. Or like, oh, you gained weight. And it's, you know, I get it. You see family members every now and then. And the first thing they're going to comment on is what you look like. And that is so triggering for people. Yeah. And then we get to the dinner table and it's like, okay, great. They made comments about my body and now people are thinking twice about what they're putting on their plate. Yep. It's so interesting. This is giving me a lot of, pardon the pun, but food for thought today. I'm really cognizant of this, Jessica, because I have a 15-year-old daughter, you know, who's really athletic. And I have to remember what I feel like might be a compliment may not be perceived as a compliment, especially if it's about her hair or how she looks or how fit or athletic she seems or you know so I'm always I'm always sort of cognizant of that of be careful because that may not be perceived as a compliment to her right for sure and we're human and people mean well I think in general the intent is to be positive however we don't know people's struggles and stories and unfortunately they may internalize it as well what does that mean about how I used to look like? Or right. did you not like me then? And right. so, yeah, trying to make a conscious effort of, 
you know, complimenting people's like energy or their vibe or just being a nice and good person. I mean, sometimes it just goes back to the good old words of like, if you have nothing nice to say, (laughs) don't say anything (laughs) at all. (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, holiday dinners can be very triggering for our clients. You know, can bring a lot of trauma memories. Mm. That's, That's for sure. Yeah, definitely. Well, I feel like we could go on and on and branch off into a bunch of different directions, but I'm not sure Sierra Tucson wants that. We're going to leave this one for what it is, but I hope that I get to speak with you both again and we can, you know, roll up our sleeves and do some more good work and share this with listeners. So just want to thank you both for joining me and you both stay well. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. And for more information, go to SierraTucson.com. And if you found this podcast to be helpful, please share it on your social channels. Be sure to check out the full podcast library for additional topics of interest. This is Let's Talk Mind, Body, Spirit from Sierra Tucson. I'm Scott Webb. Stay well.